Well, good morning. My name is John Fox. I am the discipleship pastor here at uh, Christ Community, and I have the pleasure of preaching for you today, and we're going to be in Jonah. Uh, we're resuming Jonah. We started it last week. Pastor Casey led the, uh, the first sermon with Jonah chapter one, and guess week. Uh, guess what? This week we're in chapter two. So uh, your, your pew Bibles, we don't have pews, but the Bibles around you, if you're looking uh, for where to turn, it's going to be on page 774 to 775. Um, so that's a shortcut for you if you're looking to find that obscure little book. Um, it's going to be after the Psalms uh, and, and before the New Testament. So if you're looking for signposts, that's where you're going to find it. Um, I, as I was preparing for this message and thinking about Jonah chapter 2, I was pretty uh, convicted about some things in, in relating to Jonah. And uh, last week we saw that, <clears throat> Jonah, just uh, as a review for you, that the Lord, God, he comes to Jonah and he says, that he wants him to, he gives him five words in the original language. He says he wants to go and preach to a foreign city, a foreign nation that is the most violent on earth. And Jonah's response is to run. And instead of doing what the Lord wants, he runs. He runs not just a little, little bit away, but he runs 2,000 miles in the opposite direction. So God tells Jonah, go, go to this city, and he runs as far away to the uh, conceivable mind at the time as possible. He wants nothing to do with this mission. And as Pastor Casey talked about last week, he, is, uh, uh, he can't run away from God, and so God gets him in the middle of a storm at sea, and he is eventually thrown overboard after, uh, after his, his uh, running is found out. And then he's captured, as we see, by a great... Uh, great fish, a sea creature, at the end of chapter 1 in verse 17. And uh, so what I'm going to do for you this morning is read that and then start to dig into the passage. And we'll go from there. At this point, I realize I should have put a post-it note in my Bible for Jonah because uh, now I have to eat the crow of finding such a difficult book that I mocked you about. Okay, here we go. Jonah, chapter. Uh, let's start in, in verse 17, chapter 1. <clears throat> and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. And then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep. Into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet shall I again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head as the, at the root of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bar Bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit. O Lord, my God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. 
Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake the hope of steadfast love, their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Well, as I was reading this, I couldn't help but have a strong vision come to mind for me of uh, a somewhat similar circumstance that I was in. And uh, no, it was not a fish. I was not in the sea. Uh, and I was not in darkness for three days and three nights. But uh, the, uh, the sort of intention was the same in my heart. And uh, for those of you who don't know, I used to be a bus driver, which was by far one of my favorite jobs I've had. And uh, not just for any district, but for College Station ISD. And uh, at that job, one of the things that I would do is, is do uh, field trips. It's one of the favorite parts of the job, is you get to go on a field trip, take kids there, drop them off for the whole day, and then you get to do whatever you want. Uh, all you do is just, you can sit on the bus, you can study, you can read, whatever it is. And uh, I had dropped the kids off and then gone to go study or something. I had to go back to pick the kids up. And it was, uh, it was about 2 o'clock in the afternoon, so I knew I had to get on my route. And when you're a bus driver, the first thing that they do is teach you some basic rules. And one of the first rules is the pre-check for your bus. you got to make sure everything's right. After that, uh, the next rule is that you have to know how to read directions. It's extremely important for that job to know how to read directions uh, because this is at a time before Google Maps was on your phone or people had smartphones, if you remember those dark days, the dark ages. And uh, as I had uh, just my paper on the route, I placed it beside me. And one of the, the practices that you get into as a bus driver is you just memorize things. So the initial thing is you get the paper, you read it, you look over it, say kind of mentally keep track of all the turns in your head if you can. <coughs> and then... Uh, and then you get to a point where you don't need the papers much. And that's about the, the place I was at, at least I thought. And so I'm going to pick up the kids, and it's way out past Brian, past, um, past Willis, past all of that. And uh, there's trees. So basically every, every stop sign you come up to, you look to your left and there's trees, and the right and there's trees, and it's the same on the other two sides of the street. So uh, anywhere you go, there's really no way of knowing where you are. And it's county roads, so there's not signs half the time. Uh, but I, in my, in my wisdom, thought, oh, I know, I know where I'm going. This is fine. And, uh, and so I breezed past the, the first few stop signs. And, and then I realized by the time I got to the next that I was not on track. Because I, I had that sort of uh, sneaking suspicion that maybe I was wrong. And, and so then I pulled up my, my list and I looked at my instructions and realized, no, I'm horribly off course. I have no idea where I am. Uh, but then I said, well, that's fine. I have a good memory, so I'll just backtrack. And uh, so I started backtracking, going down the roads. And then uh, these, these roads, it's not a city grid, if you've ever been out there. It's, uh, it's, it's like the jungle. And so driving around in the jungle, and then I realized I have no idea where I am. And there's only one option for me, really. Uh, unless I just take the magic turn and I'm where I'm supposed to be, and that is to call base. And uh, to call base would mean uh, it would mean that I really have to humble myself 
and suffer the ridicule of everyone in the bus barn. Because the way news travels in the bus barn is very fast. And everyone knows what happens if something goes wrong on a route. So, um, so I, uh, I decide not to do that and instead say, I can still figure this out. How much time is it? I've got 30 minutes to burn. I can still figure this out. So then I start driving around more and get more lost. And eventually I just can't take it anymore. And I'm horribly, horribly late already. And there's no way I can get there in time. Uh, so I do what I have to do at the last moment and call call Carol at the bus barn and uh, have to confess my sin to Carol. And, uh, and then she was really gracious, really nice. And she pulled up this new thing called Google Maps on her internet browser and, uh, and then safely led me back to where I was supposed to go and got a little reprimand, but, uh, but I survived. And uh, I tell you that because that's kind of what is happening in Jonah. Not that he's on a bus or anything like that, but he, he's making some decisions in his life that lead him to a place he should never have been. And he admits he never wanted to go at the end of it. So last week we see that he's captured by this fish. And this week we see that God is teaching Jonah a lesson. Uh, a lesson through a few, uh, a few tools. And when the first thing that God does to him is comes to him with adversity. The second thing is compassion. And the third Thanksgiving comes out of that. So this morning we're going to look at a main point that runs everything together, and that main point is this, that, that returning to God will revive your soul. That's what we see of Jonah here. Returning to God will revive your soul. And we see that God does it by adversity, compassion, and thanksgiving. So let's dig in. Psalm um, 3 and 86, there's so many psalms that mimic this psalm in Jonah, or just the other way around. Jonah here is in a desperate place, and what he does is calls to mind Scripture. If you've ever been in a desperate place uh, and you are a believer, then you know very few things are as comforting to you in that predicament as the Word of God. And so Jonah here, he, he does that. And we read in, in chapter 1, verse 17, and the Lord appointed a great fish. So the first thing that we see is that God comes to Jonah through adversity. It's an invitation for him. He's using it. Uh, the word appointed here is, shows up a number of other times in the book, and uh, he appoints here the fish. Now, for the fish, just, just so you know, I resisted the urge this past week to like fully dive in and figure out, is it really possible for someone to live in the belly of a fish in the you know, sea? Uh, I resisted that urge, and I'm glad I did because uh, I ran across this quote that I'd like to share with you about, about those kind of endeavors. Even though I don't think they're totally wrong and it's healthy to kind of see how things can happen scientifically, uh, one, one theologian said this, that is pointless to ask whether Jonah really could have been swallowed by a great fish without also asking whether God really could communicate with a prophet. Every aspect of a man's encounter with God is miraculous. So as you read the story and you see this thing about a great fish swallowing Jonah, resist, can I encourage you, just resist the urge to write that off as historical fiction or allegory. 
Um, there are reasons why, and we'll see this towards the end, that this is probably a very historical event. Um, so, so that puts us in a place where we can read this and say, like, th- this is a man who really experienced suffering, uh, and suffering in a way that most of us haven't uh, or won't. So we see that the Lord appointed it, but he points to fish, and he doesn't only point to fish. There's other things in here. Um, we see that, that God, initially, he hurled the storm on the sea. God's the one who's doing it. And he, uh, after Jonah was thrown in, the, the sea ceased, like instantly stopped, because God has power over the water. Not only that, but the lot fell on Jonah, which is a way of showing that it's God's will for this to happen, indicating that he's the guilty man. And later on in the book, we see that God will plant, uh, he, will, he will appoint a plant to grow up over Jonah, then appoint a worm to destroy the plant, and then appoint a, a scorching east wind to give difficulty to Jonah. God in this book is in control of everything. That's one of the main themes and messages that Jonah is showing us here. And we really have to see that and understand it to, to understand the conversation that's happening here in Jonah 2. So let's read Jonah 2, 1 and 2. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. It's easy for us to miss, but did you catch it? In verse 1, he says, then, which means that this experience of being swallowed by the sea creature in the darkness, in the water, is what causes Jonah to pray. Adversity causes Jonah to pray. And think about it this way. You probably know someone like Jonah, but not really as intense as Jonah. It took being battered at sea, thrown overboard in a storm at sea, drowning, being swallowed by a sea monster, and living in its belly for three days for Jonah to admit that he's wrong. Three days of this. Whatever's happening to his skin with stomach acids and who knows what, Jonah is a hard nut to crack. Okay, so on Mother's Day, just let me tell you, um, maybe sometimes you find it difficult to be married to your husband, wives, mothers, but there's hope. There's hope. He's not like Jonah, at least not this intense, right? It takes three days of torture for Jonah to finally tap out. This man has a will that you don't want to mess with. Unless you're God, and he does. He does powerfully. So Jonah here, then Jonah prayed to the Lord. God knows. He knows what it takes to get through to Jonah. And I think for us, the same. God knows what it takes to get through for us. Whatever he's trying to do to teach you through adversity, through suffering, through difficulty, God knows how much you can bear, and he knows how much you need to return you to him. Let's keep reading. John 2, 3. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. The language of waves and billows is a language that the, psalm, the psalms use elsewhere 
King David and Solomon, many other people to say that it's, this, is, this is an event that God has caused to happen upon me. And this is what we see that Jonah says and he proclaims. In a sense, he confesses that you cast me into the deep. It was your waves and your billows that passed over me. Jonah is saying something that we talked about just briefly, but we haven't really explored, and that's this, that God is sovereign over everything and everyone in creation. Jonah knows something about God that we have said, but it's so hard for us to understand unless you've been through it. Uh, there's some passages here that may be of help. Isaiah 46, 9 through 11, God talks about himself in his sovereignty and ruling over all nations. And he says, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. God says, I am in control. Or if that's not enough for you, I'm, I, I can't help but think that Jonah maybe had these verses in mind. Psalm 135, 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. Even where Jonah is. Proverbs 19, 21. That many are the plans, of, plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Jonah may have his plans, but God's purpose will stand. He wants someone to go to Nineveh, it will happen. Or succinctly, Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. The one true God has complete control over all the domain of the earth and the universe. Nothing happens without his will. Jonah knew that God controlled the seas, but after this, he, he felt it. He experienced it. As a prophet, Jonah knows God. He knows stuff about God. But this is the point where Jonah, we, we see that in his confession, he says, you did it. You're the one who put me here. That is a heavy and beautiful truth in the scriptures. And perhaps in some other time, some other sermon can be worked out more for the implications. But let me add this caveat before your mind starts going in a dangerous direction. Job understood this. He experienced it, this adversity from the Lord. And he would say this about God's um, massive control over nature, over lightning bolts and clouds and darkness and storms and earthquakes and fire. In Job 37 12, he says that they turn around and around by his guidance to accomplish all, the all that he commands them on the face of the habitable world, whether for correction or for his land or for love, he causes it to happen. So before you start to think about God in control of all things and ascribe evil to God, I think it's always, we have to be very careful and see when God does things, even adversity, he has more in mind than just us. And that's always what happens. If you experience suffering or adversity and difficulty in life, you think naturally, oh me. But God is 
way more in mind than just you. Job tells us that at least it's correction, but also the land. God cares for the earth. Not only that, for love. The reason that God does things may be hidden from us when we're going through adversity. Job confesses that, th- that his adversity, though, comes from God. And we see that that does something. Jonah doesn't sit there and stew in it, but it actually it leads to something. It promotes something in his life. And we read in verse 4, Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look at your holy temple. Struggle as he might, Jonah finally admits that his only hope is God. There's only one place where true worship was permitted of the one true God in Israel. It was in the temple. As a prophet, Jonah knew that this was the place where God forgave sin. It's the place where his presence dwelled. And hadn't we already seen previously in the book twice that it says as soon as the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, he does what? He flees from the presence of the Lord. And then later on, his attempt to get on a boat and flee to Tarshish, to flee from the presence of the Lord. Jonah knows God, but he doesn't want to be with God. But here what we see is that adversity, suffering for Jonah, that the Lord brings upon him, does something. It's easy to miss, but he says, Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. He says, I want to be back in your presence. I forsake you. I ran. I left. But I now want to go back. I'm to the end of myself. Eventually, Jonah's heart is softened by the adversity sent to him by God. That's an amazing thing. The Puritans used to say this, that, um, that the same sun that hardens the clay melts the ice. The same sun that hardens the clay melts the ice. So that to say that some people, when they go through adversity, they become hard and harder. And they're a kind of person that you don't want to be around, that can't feel, or that lashes out at everyone around them. And that happens for everyone in adversity, but they stay that way and grow worse. But there's another kind of person that when it comes, like Jonah, it melts him eventually, makes him soft, soft so that he might again receive the words of God. By saying, yet I shall again look, Jonah is expressing faith that God will see him safely back to his presence. Jonah gives an admonition that he is tired of running from God and he's willing to return to him. Jonah sees in this first bit of chapter 2 that returning to God is good for his soul. It revives his soul. And the way that God revives his soul at first is not pleasant. It's through adversity. It's through suffering. But it's to bring him to an end of himself to hope in God. But not only does God bring adversity to revive Jonah's soul, he also brings compassion. So let's keep reading. The waters, verse 5, closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. At the root of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought me up from, you brought up my life from the pit. O Lord, my God. So 
so far in my theological development, uh, I have had uh, a fair amount of the first, I would say, where I, I have I've seen wonderful truths about how God is sovereign and over all things, controls all things, they exist for his will and his purpose. But that knowledge doesn't get you very far without this next bit, without the compassion of the Lord. And this is what Jonah sees. God knows Jonah's state. He cares. God is compassionate. And it's, it's simple, but because it's so simple, I think we often don't feel the impact or the power of it. God is compassionate. And here's, here's how compassion is defined. Sympathetic consciousness of others' distress. That's the first part. So you can see it. You're aware of it. You know it. Together with a desire to alleviate it. So God knows where Jonah's at. He knows his inward t- turmoil. But then he has desire to do something about it. He doesn't enjoy seeing Jonah wreathing around in pain in a fish at the bottom of the sea. God could have easily, and he, he did this with many other people, just pass over Jonah. He could have just said, Jonah's going to die. I'll find someone else to do what I want. But he didn't in this case. And he has compassion on Jonah. The Lord is compassionate. Let's keep reading. Or read verse 7 again. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you and to your temple. God sees him fainting. When you see someone in physical trouble, most people can't help but feel something. Even if it's just somebody on the corner of a a street that's asking for money, something happens that you instantly have to deal with. Either you have to say, I feel compassion for them. I want to help in some way. They're obviously in in some distress. Or you say, shut that down. I'm not going to feel that way. It's their fault. And God doesn't do that. God is the most feeling being in existence. This is something I tried to sit sit with a lot this week. You say it this way, that we have to realize who is being discussed here. Uh, and, and Jonah has them in mind, him in mind, so let's just talk about it this way. When Jonah says the Lord, it's a name for God. Uh, now in your English Bibles, it'll say all caps, Lord, but that is uh, as a different name for God than just God. Most of the time it's uh, Elohim is just God, a general form of the word. But that's not what appears mostly in this book, and especially in chapter 2. The name that appears, that Jonah knows by, God by, is his personal name. Uh, we would translate it, uh, we would say Yahweh is the name. It's the name that he gives to his people, his personal people. So in Exodus uh, 34, we see it this way, that Moses, when he comes to God on Mount Sinai, he says, I want to see your glory. I want to know you as closely as I can. And God's response is, no, you can't know me. You can't see me like that because you'll die. Too much for you. But I'll let you see just a little bit. And here's what he sees. This is the moment where God reveals himself to his people Israel, of which Jonah is one. Verse 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, that's the covenant name of God. What is he like? A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness.
keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. God is someone who is extremely compassionate, more than Moses or Jonah can get. It rests upon God to show compassion to whom he will. Jonah doesn't earn it, especially in this situation. It's part of God's character that we have to understand if we are to really know him. Here's another way to think about it. God cares more deeply, as I'm thinking about this, God cares more deeply about my wife than I do. Or my dad, brother, sister, any family member, any friend, and the same for you. God cares more deeply about the person that you love the most than you can match. It is the compassion of God that Jonah calls to mind because he knows that even in this situation, God is compassionate. He sees and he cares, and he's able to do something about it. You know, later on after this, Israel is basically wiped out and suffers horrible destruction. And the, weep, the weeping prophet, Jeremiah, he'll say this in Lamentations 3, but this I call to mind, despite all the adversity that God has brought upon me, this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Jonah finally, finally understood there's something about God I've only heard about and never really believed. He's able to help. He's compassionate. He wants to. When you woke up this morning, according to Jeremiah, you were showered with steadfast love and faithfulness. When you woke up, you didn't know about it when you were sleeping, but you're showered with it while you slept. Today, showered with steadfast love and faithfulness. This is so a part of God's character that it even, even means that he, he will be patient and not bring about justice immediately. Second Peter talks about it this way, that the Lord is slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient. He's patient with you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That God is a kind of a person who will bring justice, but at the same time, his compassion is huge. And if you're willing, willing to repent and return, then he will forgive. Jonah knows this. And so for us, I just have to ask, as I asked myself, do you see God as compassionate? Like when you think of God, when you pray, when you hear the, the, the name, the word God, what is it that comes to your mind? Is it some distant, sort of detached, cold idea? Or is it a loving father? Is it someone who sees your need and cares about it? Jesus' classic example of, of a good father is if, you, uh, if your kid asks for, for food, you don't give them scorpions, snakes, 
You give him bread because you have compassion for him. You love him. So the same for God. If we don't feel this compassion, that's one thing. If we don't see it, if we don't think about it, it's another thing. So I, I think for a lot of us, we probably think, oh, God's compassionate, but do you feel it? I think God wants us to feel it just like he does for Jonah because that leads to something else, which is the next thing that we see, lastly, that returning to God produces a thankful heart. Thanksgiving. In verse 8, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. And verse 9, but I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you, for I have vowed what... I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah presents to us now something a little bit different. If you notice in the psalm, it's not chronological. He kind of bounces back and forth. He says, I was in this horrible distress and the Lord saved me. I was going down and the Lord saved me. I was down in death and the Lord saved me. Uh, But now he stops and he provides a commentary of sorts. And uh, he, he really what he does is he presents to us two ways to live. So here's my life and what happened to my life. And now he says, and here's, here, here are the options that I've found going through this. And the first is in verse 8, that those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. After recounting this unforgettable episode of how God saved him, Jonah sees something. He sees that there's two ways to live. And the first way is to pay regard to idols or cling to them. Uh, your translation may have cling, it may have something else. The point is that they are extremely valuable in your life. When you need something, you go to them. You pay regard to them, you cling to them. They're your hope. They're what you base your life on and rely on. And Jonah says that if you do that, if you live that way, you will forsake or abandon or lose real love. When we place our trust in anything or anyone other than the one true God, we practice idol worship. It's a sort of confession that that Jonah gives here, that he's learned that he had an idol problem. But through the Lord's adversity and compassion, he was changed. With those two things coming together on Jonah, he can now sit back and see, it was me. I was trusting in myself. I didn't want to do what the Lord wanted. I thought I was more wise than him. him. I thought I knew what was good for me. But if you do that, you're going to really lose love. You think you'll have it, but you'll lose it. That's the first way. The second way to live that Jonah gives us is in verse 9. He says, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. The second way that Jonah tells us to live is that you have to give thanks, but give thanks in the right direction. So before, what he's doing is giving thanks to an idol, which can do nothing. Uh, And we hear idol, that's a little bit difficult for us, but especially in those days, it's literally something that you would carve or fashion, uh, and and then you put it on a shelf in your house or in a corner. And anytime something good happens in your life, you give thanks to that idol. We don't have idols, most of us, uh, that I'm aware of, that sit in the corner of our house, but we do have other idols that are nonetheless in our hearts that we rely on, whether it's us, the expectations of other people, money, 
performance, different things. We create them too. And Jonah says that if you, if you give thanks to that, you lose love. But if you do thanksgiving with sacrifice to the one true God, then you have something else entirely. He learned that he needed to give thanks to his creator and his savior. The kind of living that Jonah is talking about, though, is very costly. It's very costly. It requires sacrifice. It's not just thanksgiving. It's not like it's lip service that you just say, oh, God's wonderful. Jesus is great. But it requires something of you. Jonah reaffirmed that he was willing to pay the cost. What's the cost that he's talking about? I think that is probably his initial call as a prophet to go to people to tell them God's truth. And later on in the book, we see a little bit more of why Jonah didn't want to do that. But what we see here is he's willing. He's come back around full circle. He wants to be obedient. And part of being obedient means that he's thankful. He had heard that he was supposed to give thanks to God, but now he actually did it. And this, this shows us that Jonah had a transformation in his heart. When we have a transformation in our heart like Jonah, we'll experience the same sort of thing. Notice the change in Jonah. He prays. And when he prays, things change. In verse 7, when he comes to the temple with a prayer, the language changes. Instead of just having a prayer now to where he uh, has lip service, now there's motive behind it. There's a will. And so in verse 9, we see, I will give thanks. And then in verse later on in verse 9, that I will vow. He was saying at first, this is my predicament. I'm in distress. But now he's saying, because of what the Lord's done for me, I will do something. And what happened in Jonah? Well, Jonah, as we see in verse 7, he prays, but he prays to the temple, that place, the presence of the Lord. And when he prays to the temple, he knows something is happening. Sacrifices are being done constantly. The innocent blood of animals is being shed for human sin. And as he's thinking about that and praying, his prayer is accepted to God, and God forgives him. And then what results is will. I will give thanks. This isn't the only time that this, this passage shows up. It shows up one other time in Scripture when Jesus quotes it. To his opponents, he says, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. You see, Jonah's not the only one who sank to the deeps, spiraling down into death. Jesus said before he went to the cross, that's what I'm going to do. And the only reason that Jonah here is accepted back to God and forgiven and has thanksgiving is because Jesus took his place in a very real way. You can see it like this. Think about it like this. That the only reason that Jonah's prayer is accepted is because Jesus' prayer is rejected. In the garden, Jesus comes before his crucifixion and prays and asks his disciples to pray with him. They can't do it because they're so sleepy. And he prays, Lord, let this cup pass from me. And his prayer is completely rejected. 
He has to fully drink the wrath of God. He is sent spiraling down into death instead of Jonah. And Jonah's prayer comes and is answered. And even though Jonah didn't know Jesus, he knew the sacrificial system. He knew that blood had to be paid for his sin. And so what we see in Jonah now is that a movement happens because of his faith in God, where he sees God will provide a sacrifice. God will pay for my sin. A movement from I have to. This is Jonah's life, his entire life up to this point. I have to. I have to be obedient. I have to give God's words. And I can't help but wonder if it's the same for us, that maybe you think the Christian life is having to do things. Have to read my Bible. I have to pray. I have to tell people about Jesus. I have to be kind to my family. This is not the kind of life that Jonah shows us. It's not the kind of life that Jesus gives us. Rather, there's a movement in the will into what used to be haves now becomes gets. That Jonah understands, I get to do this. I get to give thanksgiving to God. I get to pay sacrifices. I get to give what I vowed. And the same for us, that if you know Jesus, because of what he's done on the cross, dying for your sin, it's not halves to anymore for you. It's gets to. That you now get to live a life where you love God, whereas before you're objects of wrath. This is the wonderful truth that Jonah gives us, that this morning, even if you're running, you can change from a have to to a get to, to where you love God and obey his commands from the heart. And maybe, maybe it's not a huge thing. Maybe it is for you. Maybe running for you today where you're sitting, you have some huge thing in your mind that you've hidden from everybody. And it's, it's a large issue that you're running from God like Jonah. In God's love and kindness, be aware. He will use adversity to draw you out of it. And maybe he is now. But even if it's not something huge and monumental, there are still all sorts of small ways that we run from God, just like Jonah. And the invitation, the plea is just the same, to return. Return to God and he will revive your soul. See how he has orchestrated all things in your life for this end. Do you, do you see how God has orchestrated adversity in your life to bring you back to him? Do you see how God has poured his compassion out on you in Christ that you wouldn't be eternally separated from him, the source of all goodness? God is compassionate for you even now. Or not even that, you see that God has given you the opportunity to be thankful, even in the midst of adversity and suffering that God gives us the opportunity to be thankful to him, to run to him as the refuge from everything else and give up our stubborn pride. You see, for me, driving the bus and, and not willing to be able to, not being willing to call in for instruction and, and all that sort of thing is the same, same sort of main issue going on in my heart. I'm prideful. I don't want help. I can figure this out on my own. Same for Jonah. And it will get you to the bottom of death. So instead, let's turn and see Jonah's life, see Jesus' life for us, and hear Peter's words in 1 Peter 2, that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin 
and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now returned. You have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Jonah's plea, Jesus' plea, Peter's plea for us is return and revive. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your word coming to us in the midst of our rebelliousness, our pridefulness. God, we ask that you would give us such a vision to see that you, you plan all things for your name and our good. God, in your compassionate and your desire to have people that love you and know you and give thanks to you rightly from the heart. God, I ask that you would you would bring to my mind and people's minds here and now ways that they have run from you and haven't been willing to talk about it, haven't been willing to address it, Father, but know that they're not near you been running from your presence. God, and for those that don't know you, Father, would you open their eyes to see that Jesus has paid their debt. Life is theirs. They would have it. Father, we ask all these things in your son's name. Amen.